Right. Welcome back to Rebel Cast. I'm your host, Salim Razai. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing our peripheral vasopressors safe. And to help me with this, as always, I have my trusted co host, Anand Swami Nathan. Swami, how's it going, brother? It's good, man. Good, man. It's good to be back recording this. It's a uh, common practice. We talk about it all the time. People ask us questions about it all the time. And it's really nice that you turned up some new literature on the subject that we can get into. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important topic. It's certainly something I'm doing in my practice. And I think it's, you know, anytime we do anything in practice, we should probably know the safety of what it is that we're doing and not just being like cowboys in the wild, wild west. Absolutely. All right, let's get into this. What are we, uh, what are we dealing with today? Yeah, so let's get into the background here. So traditionally, vasopressors have been given through central venous catheters in the critically ill. But the problem is, is that it takes time to place those central venous catheters. And this is potentially time a patient could remain hypotensive. And it could be that early initiation of vasopressors may be associated with reduced mortality by helping increase end organ perfusion a little bit sooner. Therefore, there's been this growing trend to use vasopressors through peripheral IVs, and running pressures through a peripheral IV has a couple of important benefits, and we've already stated one of those. It's that we can start the vasopressor much sooner, and there's no need potentially for an invasive procedure like a central venous catheter in some cases. Unfortunately, there's just little evidence to support the safety of this practice other than one systematic review, which basically included case reports and case series, which... I don't think anybody is going to call the top of the pyramid of evidence-based medicine. So now we have two more papers that have kind of come out recently, been getting a ton of publicity on foam. And I felt like because it's something you and I are both doing, it's a really good idea to go over both those papers and discuss the question, are peripheral vasopressors actually safe? Yep, I totally agree. So let's get into the first of our two articles. This is by Tian et al., Safety of Peripheral Administration of Vasopressor Medications, a Systematic Review. This was in EM Australasia 2019. This group basically did a systematic review evaluating the safety of delivering vasopressor medications through peripheral IVs. They did a literature search looking for prospective and retrospective studies of vasopressor infusions in adults. And their primary outcome, Selim, was looking at adverse events related to the use of peripheral pressors. They defined those events as extravasation, skin necrosis, limb ischemia, compartment syndrome, infection, and any other reported complications that they thought was due to the peripheral IV pressors. And they did have a number of secondary analyses as well. But the big one, the one that I think we have to discuss a little bit, is they looked if any of the studies detailed the administration protocols or the policies or guidelines that were around these infusions, including things like what they did for observation and what they did if there was an extravasation. And I think both those points are important. I know you and I usually harp on composite outcomes, but I think most of us would agree that skin necrosis, limb ischemia, compartment syndrome, and infection are all pretty equivalent bad things in terms of uh, bad outcomes with this practice. And then I agree. I think we're going to later on in the podcast get into uh, just how we observe these things and why that's so important. Um, as far as the inclusion exclusion criteria, I'll list these in the show notes. I'm not going to bombard everybody on the audio with that, but I think we should just get straight into the, the results. And there were seven studies that got identified in this uh, paper, and they included 1,382 patients uh, or the equivalent of 1,436 episodes of peripheral vasopressor administration. In other words, some patients got peripheral vasopressors more than one time. And they looked at studies published between 2009 and 2018. And if you look at the range of 
patients per study, it was anywhere from 20 patients per study up to 734. So it's kind of a, a broad range there. And the important thing here, I think, is that most of the catheters were 18 or 20 gauge in size. Now, unfortunately, due to the low event rate, association between complications and peripheral IV size couldn't, couldn't be reliably assessed in this study. Most of the common administered agents, well, no surprise here. You see noradrenaline or norepinephrine, as we call it, uh, 702 episodes, and then followed by phenylephrine, dopamine, meta. Man, I always, this is such a mouthful. <laughs> Metaraminol. Metaraminol. Yeah, metaraminol, um, which I don't think we have in the United States. And then vasopressin and adrenaline um, being kind of taking up the tail end of that. Now, one thing I was really impressed by here is that the mean duration of infusion was 22 hours in this study. It ranged anywhere from 8 to 36 hours. And we'll come back to that because that is certainly not my practice running these things for 22 hours. Now, if we look at extravasation events... 35 events, Swami, which is the equivalent of 3.4%. And the important thing with that is there was no reported episodes of tissue necrosis or limb ischemia, which I think is important. And all extravasation events were managed conservatively or with vasodilatory medication. So in other words, in this study, we didn't make anybody's arms fall off by doing this practice. Yep, and none of these patients needed to go to the operating room either. So across the you know 1,400 episodes of peripheral vasopressor administration, this low event rate, none of those patients had to go to the OR with plastic surgery for debridement or skin flaps or any of these other procedures. This was all just bedside management, maybe with some vasodilatory medications, if anything else. Really, not a lot of treatment had to go on, and the event rate really low, 3.4%. I think that's pretty reassuring, actually. And I think that's pretty consistent with what we've seen in, in previous literature, although none of this has been like super robust. But I think that number is, is probably like, I believe that number, like that's probably what it actually is. The one thing I, I would want to say here is that it's really interesting if you read through the body of the paper versus looking through the table in the paper. In the table, which is table number three, they say there was 38, not 35 extravasation events. And they say out of 1,434 infusions, not 1,436 infusions. So if you actually do some math on that, the extravasation rate is probably 2.6%, not 3.4%. So either way, I think we agree that it's low. So let's go into some of the strengths and limitations. Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a lot of strengths here because it's a meta-analysis, it's a systematic review, which can only be as good as the studies that go into it. But it is important for us to be looking at this particular problem, this particular issue, because we are using peripheral pressures and we'd like to know what the best evidence is and what the accumulated best evidence is. They did predefine their inclusion criteria to provide an estimate of the incidence of adverse events, which I think is important. They looked at a host of number of different number of different adverse events, which again I think is really important. And they did a pretty extensive search strategy. So I think it's unlikely that they missed any significant studies. Now the limitations obviously are going to be many, and it's not the fault of the authors. I actually applaud them for trying to get us an answer to this question. It's just what's available, and, and that's not their fault. So if you look at all the included studies, they were observational or case series without comparison groups. So there was no randomized clinical trials. Duration of vasopressor use in the included studies is relatively limited with all but two studies receiving less than 24 hours of infusion. So therefore, we're really unable to draw conclusions regarding the safety of kind of more prolonged perfusions, like going out longer than 24 hours. And again, we'll come back to that. Yeah, we're definitely gonna have to come back to that because that is not our typical approach to using peripheral pressors. 
I think there's some important things to discuss here, but probably the best thing to do is we'll wrap up this paper, we'll talk about the next one, and then we'll discuss peripheral pressors altogether. So the authors conclude, reports of the administration of vasopressors via peripheral IV catheters when given for a limited duration under close observation suggest that extravasation is uncommon and is unlikely to lead to major complications. And I think we pretty much agree with that. Uh, our clinical take home from this paper is there's clearly a need for further high quality research in this area. But until that time, the practice of peripheral vasopressors appears to make pragmatic sense to help expedite time to vasopressor infusions. If using this practice, there should be clinical monitoring protocols and protocols for management of extravasation um, as the adverse event rate is not zero. All right, Celine, let's get to paper number two, and then we'll circle back and talk about what we learned from reading both of these papers and also what we do in our clinical practice. So the second paper is by Pancaro et al., risk of major complications after perioperative norepinephrine infusion through peripheral intravenous lines in a multicenter study. This was an anesthesia and analgesia, 2019. This group did a multicenter retrospective cohort study of a perioperative database from the University Hospitals in Amsterdam and Utrecht in the Netherlands. They estimated the rate of occurrence of drug-related adverse effects, and again, they were looking at things like skin necrosis requiring surgical management, when dilute epinephrine, so they were only using a concentration of 20 mics per ml, through peripheral extravasation occurs in patients undergoing elective surgery under general anesthesia. I think it's really important to stress the fact that they were using a very dilute form of norepinephrine, that 20 mics per ml, which may not be the standard that you have in your hospital. Now, if we look at the outcome is essentially the primary outcome, which is adverse drug event linked to peripheral norepinephrine administration. And I think you already mentioned this, but it's extravasation associated with tissue injury requiring medical or surgical intervention. Again, we'll list the inclusion exclusion criteria and just going right into the results. So the one thing that that caught my attention on this paper was just the sheer number of patients. It was over 14,000 patients that received norepinephrine via peripheral continuous infusion. What do you think of that number, man? Uh, it's a huge number, 14,000. The, the last paper was a systematic review and meta-analysis of seven articles, and it looked at 1,400 episodes of peripheral IV pressors. This one's on order of magnitude larger. So it's really an impressive database that they drew from. So, and the thing that that really blew me away is the drug extravasation rate observed was only in five patients. So five out of 14,385 patients gives us an extravasation rate of 0.035%. Super small number. Now, the thing I would say is that this number seems a lot smaller than what we've seen in previous papers. And if you actually, and the authors did this for us, look at the number of events per 10,000 patients, they say it'd be about one to eight events per 10,000 patients. Um, there was zero, again, zero related complications requiring surgical or medical intervention. Again, super, super, super important. I think that is consistent with what we're seeing in other papers. And again, the authors did this for us. They said zero to two events per 10,000 patients that actually required something surgical or medical in terms of intervention. Now, the one thing I do want to state here, and this is the thing I wanted to harp on on this paper, is that this has gotten a ton of traffic on social media and on Twitter. And if you look at the five extravasation events, the things that I want to kind of point out, and then I'll kind of bring it all together for everyone, is the dose range was 0.02 to 0.05 micrograms per kilogram minute. The total median infusion time was 20 minutes, which was a range of 20 to 25 minutes. The median norepinephrine dose was 40 micrograms, which was a range of 35 to 50 micrograms. 
And so if you look at the total estimated norepinephrine that was extravasated, this is 33 to 80 micrograms, which is a volume of about 1.5 to 4 mLs. So this is super dilute, super small volumes. And this is not what we're doing in our practice. And so we have to be really, really careful extrapolating the results of this study to what we're doing in the emergency department. These were perioperative patients that were getting super dilute, super small volumes of peripheral pressors for a very, very limited amount of time. This is not what we're doing in the ER. Now, Swami, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that before we get into strengths and limitations, but I really wanted to harp on that because I've seen a lot of people talking about this paper, and I think we have to be really careful what we do with this information. No, I, I don't have much else. I, I think that's exactly right, and I think we've already kind of launched into the discussion at this point because the strengths of this study are really in the volume of patients that they have, the fact that they assessed a really important question, but the limitations are exactly what you said. Those aren't limitations that anesthesiologists have to think about. This might directly apply to what they do. I was really surprised at the volume of patients that actually need to get pressors during their surgery. And not because I'm saying that the anesthesiologists are bad. I just didn't realize that so many patients do get hypotensive. It makes sense with all the agents that they're getting in the operating room for their anesthesia, that they're going to drop their blood pressure transiently. But it's a very different population than what we see in the ER, like you said, where we have sick, hypotensive, under-resuscitated patients who we're thinking about giving peripheral pressors to. And the event rate here is not just one order of magnitude less, it's two orders of magnitude less. It's 100 times less than what we're seeing in most studies and what we saw in that prior systematic review and meta-analysis. And the good thing is that the complications needing surgical management is the same in both of these, right? It's zero in the prior meta-analysis, it's zero in this one. So the event rate is much higher in the emergency department and critical care setting, but the need for surgical intervention is the same. So that is interesting to take away. I do think this is a really different population than what we're seeing. It's really different than what we do. And I'm not sure that we can directly apply this to what we do, but it is still good information for us to have. And Salim, I think the, the one thing, and I know we're going to come back to this as well, that's really important is the level of monitoring that patients are getting in the operating room when they have these peripheral pressures going. We don't have a one-to-one -one ratio of nurse to patient in the emergency room or even in the critical care unit, whereas in the operating room, there might be one person who's paying attention to that access point that's looking and checking and making sure that there's no extravasation, we don't have that luxury. So if we're going to give peripheral pressors, we need to make sure that we do have a good protocol in place for checking that site where it's going into, but understand that we're unlikely to be able to do the same level of monitoring that's done in the operating room. And then just the patients are different, right? So you've already alluded to this, but you know, hypotension can affect tissue perfusion and affect the rates of extravasation themselves in critically ill patients. I mean, we're talking about somebody who has transient hypotension in the perioperative setting versus somebody who is completely hypotensive or having decreased perfusion for a prolonged period of time. That's a different patient in my mind. And then the second part of that is that placement of an IV is going to be way more difficult in scenario B compared to scenario A. In scenario A, we say, well, they're a normal, healthy, perioperative patient. The IV is placed in a controlled setting, and it's monitored very closely, whereas in the ER, it, that's not the case. These patients come in, they're critically ill, they're hypotensive, they're not perfusing, and we're having to get these IVs in. And let's be honest, the way that an IV goes in, and this is no knock on any nurse or anybody who's putting in IVs, but you know, it's a controlled IV in the perioperative setting versus, 
you know, you're getting trying to get that IV in a vein and somebody who's kind of clamped down and, and maybe volume depleted and their veins are not completely dilated. And maybe you go through the back wall of the vein and you kind of come out and advance the catheter and there's just going to be more extravasation in that type of patient. So I think even the, the placement of the IV and the type of patient we're talking about are even a little bit different in this study. And so we skipped ahead a little bit, but let's just give the author's conclusion too, and then let's talk a little bit more about how we are actually doing this. So the authors conclude here that in the current database analysis, no significant association was found between the use of peripheral IV norepinephrine infusions and adverse events. And our clinical take home here is that this study of dilute epinephrine administered via peripheral IV did not result in any complications requiring surgical or medical intervention but that these were small, dilute doses of norepinephrine, and therefore it's unsurprising that we don't see skin necrosis. And in addition, as we've alluded to, this does not extrapolate to our critically ill patients. Now, that all being said, like we both let off this podcast saying, we are both doing this. So let's talk about how we actually do it. Salim, if you are thinking about, well, let's get to why you're thinking about using peripheral pressors in the first place. Why are you reaching for those instead of just throwing in a central line and giving it through a central line? Yeah. So for me, the reason I'm doing this is, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, is that this is a bridge to something for me. And instead of just scrambling around and trying to cram a, a crash central venous catheter in or, or rushing and making a mistake because this patient's sitting there hypoperfusing, the use of peripheral IVs allows me to get that vasopressor started early. And, and the way I think of this is what I said, a bridge to something. So either it allows me to fix whatever the problem is. So let's say if it's a GI bleed, maybe I'm replacing blood products and they just need some uh, peripheral pressors to help them out for a little bit. Or maybe it's that the patient is septic and they need to get antibiotics and they need to be resuscitated and they may not be quick responders and they may need this for a little bit longer. And so what I'm getting at is the reason I'm thinking about doing this is it's buying me time. This is not definitive therapy. So it's either going to give me time to fix something quickly, in which case I can turn the vasopressor off, or it's going to give me time to be able to place a central venous catheter in a more controlled setting so that I'm not rushing and not making mistakes for my patient so that I can transition the peripheral vasopressor to the central venous catheter. Yeah, I think that last point is really important. I mean, I'm pretty good at throwing in a central line. I'm pretty sure I can get a femoral line in in a couple of minutes. It's still slower than me putting in an IO and then running peripheral pressors through that IO. And a lot of times my patients are coming in with an IV from the field. So it's still going to be faster for me to give those peripheral pressors as opposed to putting in a central lining and doing it that way. We do have to ensure that we have a good line. In fact, I said if the patient's coming in with a line, that's going to be fastest. I'm often a little skeptical of the lines they come in from with the field, not not because my paramedics or wherever they were coming from did a bad job with the IV, but just because things get dislodged. And I really want to make sure that I have a good line if I'm doing this peripherally. I'm often reaching for an IO to do this because these patients are clamped down. They don't have great veins often. And so I'll just put the IO in. I'll start my peripheral presser. And what I'm trying to do is get that perfusion head up, make sure that the person is getting perfusion to their vital organs while I start my resuscitation. And then I can put in a central line in a little bit of a delayed fashion and then get my pressers going through that. 
And I think that was one of the things that really stuck out to us in that first systematic review meta-analysis was that the average time for peripheral pressure infusion was 22 hours, which is not my practice. My practice is a couple of hours, maybe four hours with peripheral pressure, and then I'm switching over to a central line. It, usually I'm only running the peripheral pressures until I have resuscitated the patient enough that they are stable enough that I can now take the time and put a central line in. Of course, Salim, unlike you, I function with 90 residents running around and med students, and we have lots of resources. So often I can get that central line done pretty quickly. But when I work in my place without the resident backup, where I'm kind of a little bit more on my own, I have less resources, then I will run them through the peripheral pressures for a couple of hours, stabilize the patient, and then get the central line in and do it that way. Yeah. And it's not just that patient, right? I mean, it's all the other patients that are coming in too, that you got to take care of. And it's, it's total like ergonomics of taking care of and working in an ER. And so, yeah, when you're single coverage in the community, like I am often, yeah, I, I just, sometimes I don't have time to put the central line in right then, but I'm always like, my plan is to come back if they still need it. Now, there was two things you harped on there, Swami, that I think I just want to make crystal clear for the listeners. So the first thing you said is that it's got to be something proximal. And so I think we're like, to be specific, we're talking like antecubital fossa or something more proximal, like an ultrasound guided IV into like a, a brachial or, or cephalic vein. And, and the reason we're going for these veins is because the diameter is larger in these veins. And the reason that's important isn't because of the size of the IV that we're putting in, although I would argue that you should probably be putting an 18 or a 20 in at a minimum for these, but it's that the vein is bigger so that you're more likely to get the needle and the catheter in the middle of the vein without backwalling and going through the back wall, pulling out, and then kind of adjusting the catheter. The second thing I would say is that the amount of catheter that's in the vein is probably important too. You don't want just the tip of your IV catheter. You want to have probably half, if not two thirds of that catheter in the middle of that vein to kind of minimize some of the extravasation events. And then the second thing you really harped on was how long do you actually run this infusion? And I already alluded to this in my practice. I, I'm doing this as a bridge. And so I give the patient two to four hours because the longer you run these peripheral pressers, the more you're playing roulette and asking for extravasation to occur. And so I'm either going to be able to fix that problem quickly or I'm not. And if I'm not, then we need to transition over to something else so that we minimize these extravasation events. And so I too often see people start these things in a peripheral IV and they just keep running them and running them and running them without ever wanting to put a central venous catheter. And we just got to put our laziness aside. And yes, it sucks having to do procedures sometimes in a busy department, but you got to ask yourself, is this what you would want for yourself or one of your loved ones? And I think best practices, if it's not getting better in two to four hours, we should be transitioning to a central venous catheter. So sorry for the long-winded kind of summary <laughs> no, of what no. you were saying, but... <laughs> I think it's really important. I think there's, there's some caveats in that transition over to the central line. I don't think it has to be a central line. It needs to be a long catheter. And that's really interesting in that first article. We didn't talk about it up front, but they excluded patients who had pick lines or midlines. So they had longer IVs or longer catheters that were in the vein. And if I have a longer catheter, I actually feel pretty good about that line because I'm less worried about dislodgement. With our catheters, even the long IVs, Dislodgement occurs all the time. The patient moves their arm. Uh, they get moved from bed to bed. It, it just happens. And so we can't trust them to stay in place for long periods of time. They often do 
extravasate even after we've placed them very carefully. And we all know this from doing deep brachials and then sending the patient over to CT scan. And then the CT tech calls and said, oh, by the way, all of your IV contrast extravasated into the arm in the IV that was patent, but the patient moved and now it's not. And so we do have to be really careful about that. So if I was putting in midlines or pick lines in these patients, that might be fine to run my pressors through. And we know that there are units that never put in central lines that run everything through these other catheters. So if you have the ability to put in a long catheter, I think that's fine. I think you can use that instead of a central line. And I have used midlines before instead of doing the central line. That's fine. But it can't just be those short little IV catheters that we're using for long periods of time. So I think there are problems associated with that. The other thing that is really important from all these articles is what to do when there is an extravasation. And I know, Selim, you put together a nice little infographic on how to manage the vasopressor extravasation. Um, we can go through that step by step, but all of this is also in the Revel reviews. It's on the website. You can see all of these steps. And I think it's really important to know what those steps are, or at least know where the protocol lives so that when it happens at two in the morning, you know exactly what to do. And the big ones in there, Selim, are don't remove the IV stop the pressors that are going through it, and then try to suck out as much residual volume that's in that arm, as much as you can get out of there. And then there's options to use things like sub-Q or IV fentolamine. You can use topical nitroglycerin or even sub-Q terbutaline. And again, all of the doses and everything are going to be in the show notes. Absolutely. And I think that's one of, there's a couple of things here that I just want to kind of touch on. So exactly what you said, if we're doing this practice, we one need to have an observation protocol. And I'm not saying there's one way that's right, but at least one, a few things we can take away from that second paper, which is hard to extrapolate to what we're doing. But one, there should be an observation protocol where at least every 30 minutes or maybe every hour, maybe more frequent, I don't know, whatever is feasible in, in your department. But those IVs need to be checked so that we minimize the amount of volume and amount of pressure that potentially could extravasate. And then the second thing is, yes, you should be able to handle that extravasation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you're right. We have come up with a list of things that people could potentially do. And I think you harped on that very well. The one thing that I do want to say here, Swami, before we come to a close, from the second paper, the one thing I was really blown away with is how dilute and how small a volume um, was being used. And that's something I don't usually pay attention to when I order these pressers. And so I think that's something that we need to be a little bit better about talking to our pharmacists about is what is the most dilute concentration I can use that's going to give me the smallest volume of my vasopressor. Now, that may not be an option in some shops. Um, I do actually have three different concentrations that I can use uh, of my norepinephrine at, at my shops. And so I usually will touch base with my pharmacist to try and help kind of minimize that. So that's the last thing I, I would say that we need to kind of pay attention to. Yeah, I think that's important too. I, I think if you have different volumes, great. You can adjust those for your peripheral pressors. And I think if you're going to do this in your department, put together a protocol or adopt a protocol from somewhere else. So you have kind of a rhythm of how you're going to be doing this, how often you're going to be checking. I mean, these are critical patients, so somebody should be in there pretty often. It's not that hard to check the IV and make sure that it is still patent, that the patient isn't getting extravasation, that your pressures are still working, because if they're extravasating, they're not going to be working to help the patient either. I think that if you have that protocol, then it makes it a lot easier to do this. And there should be a prompt, I think, in that protocol to switch those pressors to some other infusion, whether it be central line, midline, or pick line, once the patient is a little more stable, that that can be done. That's all I got, Swami. You got anything else? I mean, I think that was a pretty good review of kind of what we're doing and uh, I think a good review of the evidence. No, I think so. And I'm glad that we have a couple more articles in here, not necessarily because the articles are game changing, but because they bring up the issue again of how we should be doing this safely. 
Well, there you have it, Rebel Yammers. We would love to hear what you guys are doing in practice. Any questions for us, any comments, please leave them in the comments section, and we'll be sure to answer. And until next time.